You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political and legal developments. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Welcome everyone, my name is Shauna Bannon-Ward and with me today is Geraldine McAvoy, a PhD candidate in Minority Language Rights Law at DCU. We'll discuss with her her legal research on the right to fair trial for minority language speakers in Europe. Hi, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and our listeners. Yeah, no problem at all. I'm very, very happy to be here. Do you want to introduce yourself? So my name is Geraldine McAvoy. I am a PhD candidate nearing fingers crossed the end of my PhD right now at the School of Law and Government in DCU. I'm focusing on the right to a fair trial for minority language users and access to justice. And I am also a co-host of the podcast Mother Folklore. It's a podcast about words, Irish Irish words and words from Ireland. I almost forgot our tagline for a moment. <laughs> but yeah, that's me. Your research is really interesting. It's not something that I've really heard much about. So I'm really excited to learn more about your research and you finishing up your PhD. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I mean, I guess anyone's PhD is, is niche in a sense. But yeah, I think when people talk about like discrimination or human rights law, I guess human rights law is like the poor cousin of a lot of law studies. And then linguistic discrimination is like the poor cousin of discrimination laws. I think people very often overlook the linguistic aspect when we consider discrimination. And in fact, it actually can be a huge vehicle for discrimination of all kinds. My research specifically looks at two groups. So I look at Irish speakers and deaf people in Ireland and how they experience the criminal justice system specifically, but how they experience that as users of minority languages in Ireland and the problems that can arise when you use your language in a country that is not built for either of those languages. Where did you get this idea for research to begin your PhD? Did you have experience in this area beforehand or was it just something that you were interested in? Yeah, so I did my undergrad in in UCC and it was law and Irish. And I've kind of always had this like affinity for Irish that I guess I never understood until I was a bit older. I kind of, when I was a teenager, I sort of fell in love with the language when I started going to the Gaeltacht summer colleges. And I was so blessed to have the opportunity to sort of see it as a living language and experience it there because it's not my first language. I didn't grow up speaking it. My parents don't speak it. And I mean, I'm from Leash. There's not really an active Irish language community there. And when I kind of experienced that, I sort of felt at home in the Irish language community and I never really interrogated that much. So when I went to UCC, I started studying law and Irish there. And there was quite an emphasis on language rights in that course. And rightly so, I think, because of the constitutional position of Irish being the first official language. And I was innately fascinated. But as a kind of a, a weird turn of events in 2013, as part of my undergrad, I went to Montana to teach Irish in the University of Montana. It was really fun teaching Irish in America. But while I was there, I was exposed to Native American communities, particularly the Blackfoot uh, community, which is the kind of major Native American tribe in Montana. And I could see parallels in the way this community was treated 
Particularly, I remember meeting a politician who was very proud of his Irish heritage and had learned lots of Irish on Duolingo and that sort of thing. At the same time was telling me how they weren't spending on Blackfoot languages and to protect the language because it was a waste of money. And I just, in that moment, I was like, that's the most hypocritical thing I've ever heard anyone say. Can't you see the, the parallels? And I think that set me on a trajectory. So I did my master's in Oboe Academy in southwestern Finland, which is a minority language university. I did it through English, but it's a Swedish-speaking university, kind of a similar status to Irish. So I was always interested in the rights of minority language users from the kind of get-go of when I moved to Montana. And then it was actually during my PhD interview that my supervisor mentioned deaf people and ISL usage, and I had never, ever thought about deaf people prior to that. And that completely changed for me then. And I sort of threw myself into this world that I'd never knew existed before. And I had no contact with the deaf community prior. But again, I I was so blind to the similarities that are there. And, you know, the struggle for recognition of ISL, of Irish Sign Language, and the struggle for recognition of Irish and acceptance and the ability to use either of those languages. And then my focus obviously being in the criminal justice system. But I think... They sort of dovetail quite nicely. They are two very different groups with very different needs. But I think it boils down to a lot the kind of the same needs that these are just people looking for their culture and their language to be recognized. And so, as I said, it's pretty niche, but I think it's it's applicable. Most democracies have, you know, when you think about like particularly common law countries, they all have a, a story with a history with a minority language. And it's usually a tumultuous history. And it always surprises me a little bit that people don't do more research on this. And it isn't sort of at the forefront when we're talking about discrimination. Linguistic discrimination is really easy to do and people get, you know, people do it all the time. So I hope that conversation is changing as we move on in society. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. In Ireland, especially, I think just from my experience, I see that a lot. But I was wondering then, you said a lot of people haven't really taken this into consideration. When you started out researching your PhD, what did you find was the background to the approaches to these languages? In terms of the research field, there is research done on these issues, maybe not so much in Ireland, but there is definitely in other countries. I found that as an insider in the Irish language community, every Irish speaker knows that speaking Irish in the justice system or with a Garda or particularly the, the criminal justice system, but you're going to meet with, you're going to be met with hostility. We all know that, even though at the same time, we know we have a constitutional right So I found this really interesting disparity that like, here's the law. The law says I have an absolute right and even a a preferential right to use my language. But in reality, you know, good luck using your your language because you're going to face the consequences. And I think everybody knew that, but nobody was saying it or at least maybe not writing it down in a sort of clear and, and concise way. And I think with deaf people, it was really interesting. And it's been really interesting to do my my research at this time because In 2017, the Irish Sign Language Act came into force after years of work toward it. And it came into, sorry, it came into law in 2017 and came into force in December of 2020. So it's been a kind of a a really changeable time. But I think the understanding was very different in the two groups. Kind of societally, people maybe didn't see the two groups the same and they don't see the two groups the same. But as I said, I, I kind of do in terms of culture, at least. I find that in the the criminal justice system, it's such a a large immovable object. It's so hard to get anything done. And the bureaucracy there is very, it's a huge presence. So there's that element too, 
you know, the bureaucratic element of problems that people face, but also a kind of an ignorance and a distaste for anything different and anything othered. And so that's what these people were experiencing and maybe not being heard or being portrayed in a different way. And I know I'm quite sensitive to particularly Irish communities being part of that community and how very often we're portrayed as sort of cantankerous, annoying people who demand our rights. When the research that I've done, so I interviewed lots of people for my research and the research is pointing in the exact opposite direction that people are actually refraining from using their language because they can't cope with the effects of it. And that applies to deaf people, too, that they will sort of pass as hearing because they can't deal with. And it's, people shouldn't have to deal with the stress on top of dealing with criminal investigation or whatever it is, and then having to assert your language rights on top of that and being treated negatively when you do that. So it's a complicated thing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done in the criminal justice system. You really just said it there. I mean, there's um, personally for me, I'm not an Irish language speaker. So it's kind of from, from me looking at how Irish speakers really and people who use Irish sign language within the criminal justice system, I never saw really that much representation. Do you think that comes to the point of part of your research that there needs to be more representation and more accessibility for native speakers? Yeah, I think so. And I think there needs to be an acceptance of it. It's funny that I always find that it's not even just with Irish or ISL that when a person arrives at a court using another language, there tends to be a sort of, oh, my God, what do we do here? Like, what's the protocol here? As if it's a new thing. (laughs) You know, non-English speakers have existed as long as the court systems have existed in Ireland. And so I think... It's about representation, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it's, and that's kind of at the the point where I'm at in my research now is that, you know, if we're talking about access to justice for these people, it can't just be, okay, we slapped an interpreter on or we made sure that all the judges and all the guards are trained in Irish. But I mean, everybody in Ireland is trained within inverted commas in Irish, right? We all go to school for however many, 13, 14 years and we learn Irish, right? And so many people resent it. And I'm not blaming people for resenting it at all. But I think we need to tackle the societal problems that exist. So these stereotypes that people have and not even just representation in the criminal justice system, but representation in society at large that we can actually see. I mean, like I said at the start, I didn't know deaf people before I started my research. My only interaction with deaf people was the ISL signed news is on right after the Nuacht on RTE. So before six o'clock. So I'd watch the Nuacht and then it would be I think maybe the European weather forecast and then the ISL news. And that was my only interaction. And I knew nothing about, I never thought about deaf people enough to consider that, oh, hey, that's a whole culture. And I guess for for any outsiders to a group, you know, you don't necessarily know the group itself if it's not represented well. And I think the representation we have in society is either for deaf people extremely limited and harmful in the ways that it can be represented or with Irish speakers just not necessarily representative of the people who actually use Irish in their daily lives and want to live their lives in that language. About more of a focus then on the people themselves, so those using minority language. Your mm-hmm. focus in your research is partially on human rights. So how does that impact the speakers themselves um, when they're trying to navigate the justice system? Yeah, that's a really good question because I started out this research and I was so focused on the law and now it it's become kind of like a minor part of it because, you know, under human rights law, you have a right to a certain amount of things. So you've got minimum standards. So when you go to court, you have the right to a, a lawyer, you have the right to an interpreter, you have the right to you know be heard without undue delay. These are like minimum standards that generally exist across the board. And actually, 
they weren't the issues for people. Yeah, there was some instances where people weren't provided with an interpreter or where they were delayed terribly because they had to, you know, they were speaking Irish, so they were delayed for two years to wait for a judge, that sort of thing. But actually, like you said, this was more about much bigger. This was about the people and, and the experiences they had and how they were treated beyond that. And so what what I've looked at is, is sort of a more holistic look at it. Yeah, there's the minimum standards. But if we're to look at human rights law, human rights law and the right to a fair trial includes access to justice, right? So kind of an overarching point is that you have access to justice. So what do we mean by that? And I've looked at some research on it. Eleanor Flynn in NUIG, Dr. Eleanor Flynn does fantastic work on access to justice in terms of disabled people. And there are elements to access to justice, which are like, okay, the courtroom, could I physically get into the courtroom? Could I, could I actually cognitively understand the judge? But then we need to look at the law. What are the laws saying? Are the laws actually created for me, a different person? Or are they just created for like a cis white man? You know, (laughs) who are they created for and who's creating them? And then more societally, even again, like how are people perceived? So if you're to look at, for example, the perception of migrants in different countries in Ireland, you know, is there a sort of a, a discourse in society where people are perceived in a really negative way? Well, how can you be equal? How can you really access justice when, you know, the people that you're that are making your laws, that are adjudicating your freedom, that are arresting you might have these perceptions and how we can't just stick a law on it and you can't just stick a, a provision on it. You have to actually tackle the real issues. And that's a lot harder to do. And that's a really hard conversation to have. So I think if we're to look at human rights, we need to be looking at them in a more holistic way and a more societal way. There's no use saying, oh, this is the law and nobody applies it and no consequences for not applying it. We need to actually get to the root of the really, really difficult conversation. For anyone that's engaging in this conversation, then, is there anyone advocating for minority speakers, either in Ireland or internationally? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a good little group of us. There's linguists that are doing fantastic work. And then I guess probably less lawyers, but it's generally sociolinguistic that is doing a lot of the work. But there is, you know, there is lots of people doing this work and it's, it's applicable to other areas, you know, because the thing with languages is that everybody has a language. Well, most people have a language with a very minor exception. Um, deaf people being very often included in that exception, who deaf people very often experience uh, language deprivation. But for a vast majority of society, people have a language, right? Or multiple languages. So there's an intersection of other issues as well. So like I said earlier, you know, language discrimination can be so pervasive and it can be so often used as a proxy for other types of discrimination. Like, oh, we can't hire you because we don't understand your accent, right? Well, is that just a proxy for being xenophobic or being racist or being ableist or whatever it is? So I think it touches on so many different areas like ableism or racial scholarship, you know, any sort of sociological scholarship. It touches anything, the study of people, people have languages. And so I think there is a connection to so many different areas and minority languages, obviously, then connected to, to minority studies. So there is work being done. And it's great work. It's just a matter of it being heard. It's very hard for <laughs> minority issues to be heard because by their nature, they're minority. So it's hard to make people care about them. But I do think hopefully there is a change coming and maybe not a massive change, but, but baby steps, which is probably not what people need. But there are changes coming, I hope. I wanted to touch back on your research yeah. as well. It says that you have a particular emphasis on International Convention on Civil and Political Rights and then the European Convention on Human Rights. What have you found from your study of these acts and legislation, like in relation to minority language? Yeah. 
Well, specifically, those two don't really mention language at all, except for the right to a fair trial and the right to an interpreter. So it's very much interpreter based, which is great. But the the actual adjudication of those, those instruments is in some elements positive and then in some elements really, really frustrating. And I think the problem is, again, it's it's a lack of representation. It's the people who are judging this maybe don't know what it's like to be on the receiving end of uh, an unfair trial when you don't have that language. And, and I mean, these are multilingual institutions, right? The ECTHR and the um, HRC are multilingual institutions. So they, they are familiar with other languages. But I think on a very highly educated level, so you have people adjudicating these things who maybe don't know what it's like, particularly for minority languages. Or have never had to deal with an interpreter who wasn't a trained professional. So you have all of these instances where there's, you know, you have the right to an interpreter, right? But what, what does that actually mean? Is the interpreter trained? You know, that needs to be the question you're asking. Is it somebody's cousin? Is it somebody who speaks the language who was in court that day and says, I'll give it a go? And that's not the same as being provided with an interpreter. That's not the standard of the interpreter that they have in the ECTHR. And so I think we need to be very careful about how these uh, instruments are adjudicated you know another issue being for example how you might you know everyone's entitled to an interpreter when they don't speak the language of the course right okay but what does it mean to speak the language i've got a law degree right so i could probably handle myself pretty well but i'd still want an interpreter because a it's a really stressful situation and b it's not my job to check out that i understand everything in that scenario and you have the entitlement so very often there is sort of a a very blase attitude to it and I think that applies generally, like in Ireland, for example, you're not allowed to practice law as a solicitor or a barrister unless you have a professional degree. You can represent yourself, but you're not allowed to practice law, but you're allowed to practice as an interpreter who bridges the gap between the lawyer, the professional and the person. You're allowed to do that without any training. And that's not to criticize interpreters. That's to criticize a system that doesn't pay well and that doesn't provide for professionalism and sort of sources it out to whatever company can operate on the lowest bid. So it's a multifaceted problem because no one's looking at the minority because the minority aren't the majority. They're not the important ones. And so nobody's looking to, you know, we wouldn't cope. We wouldn't accept solicitors not being trained, right? We have a professional body, a monitoring body, and, uh, you know, they can disparage people. We don't have that for interpreters. And that can be the difference between, and it has been in the past, the difference between a conviction and an acquittal, you know, somebody having a criminal record or not, somebody going to prison or not, losing their freedom or not. Wrongful convictions in some instances, it's it's a really huge problem that I think doesn't just apply to Ireland, but can apply internationally as well. Coming to the end of your research, like you said, is there something that you feel like people should really focus on from what you've discovered? Or how do you feel now that you're coming to the end of your PhD? I'm really relieved <laughs> that it's coming to an end, but it's been it's been such a, a an interesting process. Like I'm really looking forward to it. Once I finish, I'm gonna look back at my proposal, my initial proposal, just to see the progress, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think it'll be so interesting to see that. But I think something that came out of my research is very much related to identity literature and Irvin Gothman, and he talks about how we perceive ourselves and then how we're perceived by other people. And those two things don't necessarily match. So the internal identity and the external identity. And the people that I interviewed, the biggest thing was how they are perceived by other people 
is not how they themselves perceive themselves and they how as a community present themselves. And I think that mismatch causes injustice, particularly when it's it's held by Gardaí or judges. When you have these people in power holding this misconception about a person or about a group. And so I think the important thing is to think deeper about who are these people and why are they standing before me using a different language? Is it because they want to annoy me or is there a deeper reason? And there is a deeper reason. A spoiler, <laughs> there's a deeper reason. I think if I was to give one piece of advice, and it doesn't just apply to minority language users, it's that everybody has their own identity and that personhood and their own history when they arrive before a court or when they arrive before people generally. And I think we need to be better at perceiving that and interrogating who people are and why they are the way they are and what their identity means to them. So much for coming on to the show and explaining your research to our listeners. If they would like to learn more about what you've done and your PhD, where can they find that out? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter uh, at Garrodean. So it's G-A-R-O-D-E-A-N. And like I said, I co-host a podcast. I sometimes talk about my research on that. There's a few episodes that I have actually talked about policing and uh, identity and stuff. And I'm hoping when I finish to actually take the reins and do a few podcasts about my research. Um, but that podcast is called Mother Folklore and it's on the Headstuff Podcast Network. And we're also, you can follow us on Twitter at Mother Folklore. We put out episodes every Friday. Thank you for listening to the Dublin On Politics Review podcast on the right to a fair trial for minority language speakers in Europe. This was Shauna Bannon Ward and I wish you a very pleasant day. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at Dublin LPR or on our website, dublinlpr.ie. This podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's Threat FM. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at dublinlpr.ie.